Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Friday, February 11th, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Pretty well. Had a almost a full week off and just got back to work today. Uh, I think we left off last pod with me telling you that driving around Mexico in really fast cars with uh, Forza Horizon XS, the radio channel playing, was the place to be. We can now start this one with me telling you that's no longer the case. Uh, 450 BCE sailing around the Mediterranean seas with Greek sea shanties playing, the new place to be. Uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey has been a deep dive of mine this week, and I had so much fun doing it. So you dove right into the video games with a little bit of time off. And what? Yeah. How, how deep are you into this story now? I'm curious. Not like I initially toyed with like, what if I just don't really sleep and try and burn through this game over like four or five days? I kind of quickly realized one, that's just not really fun to do. And two, it's massive. Like the leveling system is insane. And it looks like there's plenty of content you can't really access to. You hit 45, 50 and I'm at 18 and it like scales like one to 10 is going to be a lot or was a lot quicker than nine to or 11 to 20 and that'll be the case going on and forth but it's like they took I think I've talked with you about like it's hard to play new games from franchises we used to play because I'm just so confused and feel like a boomer at the sticks being like what I remember this working what's this new thing they've added why is it that when I do this thing that used to be really OP and cheese it doesn't work anymore um but this one I was finally able to like give myself a fresh slate really try and focus on the game and uh it was kind of incredible when it clicked because it's like they've taken those old games and implemented almost all the same things but in this much more open much more free roam rpg world and i'm just in love it's i don't remember having this much fun with video games since we were like kids and so that was a fun thing this week although it needs to be uh, treated with caution i think yeah. Oh, that's great. I, I definitely felt the uh, frustration or the lack of knowledge with 2K a little bit on well Monday now, it must have been, where you up the difficulty and all of a sudden Anthony Davis, LeBron and Russell Westbrook turn into the greatest players in the history of the league. Uh, so we definitely had to shut that out of my life for a little bit and regroup. It really, that was that was my brief video game experience this week. But besides that, busy week, lots of work and lots of keeping up on our sports. It's uh, been a crazy week and it's going to be a crazy weekend. Some big, mm-hmm. big marquee events on the docket um, and really just struggling to breathe right now with all of the sports content we haven't even mentioned the olympics really and those are in full swing uh and i don't think we're going to talk about them on this podcast because we got so much to get through the nba trade deadline the super bowl on sunday the ufc card on saturday and then we also got a little bit of talking hockey and a little bit of tennis so lots and lots of content to get through and I think it's fair that we kick off the show with the stuff that has already happened, and then we proceed to do our previews. So the NBA trade deadline, it has come and went, and it has brought forth a multitude of storylines and plenty of drama, and I am here for it all. It was, it was a good trade deadline. Not every big player that we thought would move moved, but definitely some big hitters. Uh, and we'll have to roll back a couple of days. Max, I really, I want to get your take here. Should we go really trade by trade or kind of pick out some of our favorites here and, and talk winners, losers? I think we've just got to run with what blows our mind or surprises us, Take has the biggest impact because there's too much here to go over it all piece by piece. 
All right, let's go chronologically then, but only pick out our, our favorite deals or the biggest deals of the week here. So let's start a couple days back, uh, kind of right after we wrapped up our other podcast, I was making notes in the beginning of the week and I noticed, we had already talked about this on a previous pod, how the New Orleans Pelicans were hovering around that play-in bubble and with Portland now into sell mode, there was a chance for them to jump into that 10 seed. And uh, as it was foretold by myself, we saw a move between the two teams and really kicked off our big trade deadline week where CJ McCollum was traded from the Portland Trail Blazers along with Larry Nance Jr. and Tony Snell for a massive package of Josh Hart, Thomas Sadoransky, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, D.D. Lozada, and a protected 2022 first-round pick and two second-round picks. So a lot to break down here. My instant reaction from this trade was that the Pelicans obviously get the far and away the best player in this trade in C.J. McCollum and really, really fun guy to piece together with a Zion, with a Brandon Ingram, uh, adds a ton of extra scoring. And C.J. is a guy who doesn't need to always have the ball. Uh, he can play off ball as well. He has done it for many, many years with Damian Lillard. So getting the best player in the trade is always a sign that, that you're the winning team in that deal um, and is going to be a really fun combination when Zion is finally healthy. But then you let the trade digest and you take a look at some of the other key components and context behind why the move was made. You now look at this lineup for the Pelicans that will end up being something along the lines of Devontae Graham, McCollum, Ingram, Zion, Valanciunas as your starting five. There's not a lot of defense to be had in that lineup. Um, you could maybe substitute in Herb Jones for a Devontae Graham and have McCollum be your point guard or have Zion be your point guard. But Herb Jones is a rookie and you cannot rely on him to be your number one perimeter defender, which is what the Pelicans have to do now. Um, so it, it may move the needle and it may impact their ability to get into the play-in tournament. I just don't know if this is enough. And it feels a little bit like a, a panic move by Pelicans ownership to get in a bigger name to ease the concerns and try and comfort Zion as he mulls over whether or not he wants to stay with this franchise. What I'm most interested on this trade in, and I know there's so much more for you to break down, but this is really my only piece and it feels most relevant here, is a guy like McCollum being kind of a career long or I don't know how long he's been with the Blazers and Dame actually, but like the second at bat guy like very Chris Middleton-esque and on a team like the Pelicans I think that's really interesting because even though you have a Zion Williamson you have a Brendan Ingram Ingram more so than Zion but like they're not there yet with that comfortableness of being the guy whereas McCollum in all the time he's been with Portland and Dame who naturally takes time for injury has off nights McCollum's been there and been the guy and he can yeah. do that at a level and at a role that I don't think the Pelicans have much of except for Valanciunas and look at the seasons he's having. So I think CJ McCollum actually maybe wins this trade just in that the Pelicans, a team who can let his offense shine and give him a bigger role to take on while still having plenty of more offense, I'd say to work with potentially than he had in Portland, though that, of course, does depend on the growth of Zion as so much of the fate of the New York, excuse me, New Orleans Pelicans does. Yes, you're absolutely right. CJ McClellan is a guy who has dropped 37 in a game seven on the road in the Western Conference semifinals, right? He's a guy who's been there and has performed at a very, very high level. And the argument that you make from the Pelicans side is that it almost emulates what the Chicago Bulls have done. You bring in a Vucevic with a trade. You then go and sign DeMar DeRozan. And it's like, you have Levine, DeRozan, Vucevic. Not all guys that we worried about their defense, right? Mm -hmm. But now that they've all bought in, they are sharing the ball. They are competing on defense. This Bulls team's had a lot of success. So the argument that you make if you're in New Orleans is you get talent in the door and then you figure it out. 
And so that's why I think overall, it's a net positive trade for them. I just don't know if it elevates their team past the play-in level. And again, you got to wait on Zion. On the other side here for Portland, um, Dame is not getting moved. He didn't obviously at the deadline. And so you take a look at now what they're starting to do is they are starting to accumulate some assets and it looks like they're just trying to retool around Damian Lillard. They get this big package, but in addition, they do um, unlock a $20 million trade exception and they will have $60 million in cap space heading into the off season, which is a big deal because maybe you can manage to swing a trade that lands you a distressed superstar. Um, it's possible. There are less of those guys out there now than there were three days ago, but it does give you a lot more flexibility and they were pressed up against the tax as a team going into this week. Yeah. The other guy that, that they do get that obviously we like is Nikhil Alexander Walker, but then they go ahead and they move him right in, in another trade. Uh, he goes to the Utah jazz and so they end up with Joe Ingles, Elijah Hughes, and a second round pick. So really just another second rounder to add to the collection after moving off of Nikhil Alexander-Walker. Don't know if they could have done better, but you can see they're starting to build up the draft compensation that they had lost in the Covington trade, um, as well as the other moves that they had made. But they are kind of building that treasure chest where you do have these younger guys in Anthony Simons, you do have a Nurkic that you can move for more value. Obviously you just stick with Dame and then you try and figure it out now with a reloaded team. I just don't know. I just don't know if there's, they're going to tank, they're going to get a decent pick, but I just don't know if the timeline is a quick enough turnaround to make it worth it for Lillard and he's in it for the long haul. But as, as always, the rumors will still fly on whether he will stay in Portland. Yeah, there's no smoke. There's no fire there as far as it seems. I mean, we'll get to Harden when we get there, but you think like he's been a huge trade name two times in the past year and two months. And both times those rumors, those swirls came about a month out of the trade happening, kind of persisted and then happened. We had teasings of that with Dame this summer and then nothing since. So I think there will be some hints if that's ever going to happen. And I completely agree with you that the timeline just seems incredibly tight. They need to be making win-now moves with where Dame's at in his prime. And with the assets they have, it's hard to see how they do that without completely just like going all in on some 10% chance. Yeah. We shall see. Moving along here, the next big move. Uh, I am going to say this carefully but despite a double double performance in his debut Demonis Sabonis heading to the Sacramento Kings just feels like a big move that will not pay off and I am really disappointed in Sacramento management but this is nothing new for this fan base they go for a win now move to make the play-in tournament and they give up a second year player averaging 40% from three in Tyrese Halliburton, who really has the potential to be such a fantastic piece on a high level winning team. And the total trade, of course, also giving up Buddy Heald uh, and then Tristan Thompson and receiving Jeremy Land, Justin Holiday, and a protected 2023 second rounder in return. Sabonis is a fringe all-star caliber player. He's going to fit in well with De'Aaron Fox and Harrison Barnes. But I really don't know how you can move off of Tyrese Halliburton. And if you're Sacramento, I, I would have either wanted a, a bigger star or you go the other way and you just still can try to, to turn Buddy Heald and Halliburton. Well, not even Halliburton, but you turn Buddy Heald and then rather rather than Halliburton to Harrison Barnes into more younger pieces to fit around and, and extend your timeline out further, which is not, they have a playoff mandate. It's not what they wanted to do, but it feels like a short-sighted move here to move this kind of talent in exchange for a guy that, again, like the Pelicans, raises the floor of your team, net positive in terms of paper, but 
is, is it really worth it to you to make it maybe to the eighth seed and get creamed in the first round by a Phoenix or Golden State? I don't know. Yeah, I, <laughs> I know Sabonis' contract details too well either, but I can't imagine he sticks around in Sacramento for so long. And I'm completely on the Halliburton bandwagon with you there. I think he shows tremendous potential. Um, I, I don't know how high his ceiling is versus where Sabonis is right now. I, I can't say with that much conviction on the other side that Halliburton definitely becomes like a much more valuable player than a uh, Sabonis, in which case the trade may be a little less harmful, but I do think he's going to turn out at least similarly. And uh, this one actually kind of, as you're talking, reminded me of the Forsberg trade that Washington made with Nashville, which just seemed bizarre at the time and turned out just as bizarrely as expected if you're in Washington. Yeah, a a weird one for sure. From a Indiana side, I was surprised that no moves followed this. They knew they now do have a pretty nice looking depth chart at the guard position with Halliburton, Brogdon, Duarte, and Buddy Heald all in that grouping. That's, that's pretty nice to have on that team. And now uh, it did allow them to kind of hold on to Miles Turner and really buy into him as their center of the future, right? We had mentioned that both of these guys were young, so we would be surprised if both of them moved. They now don't have to share the floor. And so they do have a rim protector and floor spacer in Miles Turner, which is a pretty rare asset in the NBA. Um, and I think he's going to fit in really well with this, a variety of, of guards with all different play styles. And, and I'm interested, it, it honestly makes Indiana more fun in my opinion. And I can't wait to see what this team does. All right. We've got our three team trade with the jazz spurs and blazers that we kind of mentioned. We've got a couple other ones, but really let's skip those and go right to the main event of Thursday, the one that everyone had expected. And then we got conflicting reports that it wasn't going to happen. There were people still pushing that they believed it was going to happen. There were conversations. One side says, no, we've never talked. And then it happened. I fell out of my chair at work when I read this news. It was a comedic moment. Um, James Harden and Paul Millsap to the Brooklyn Nets, going the other way, Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and two first-round picks. And my first moment was, my God, the Brooklyn Nets, what a haul. Yeah, that's where I'm at now. Yeah, it's, it's again, a trade that needed to be made. Ben Simmons was not going to play for this Philadelphia team. Apparently James Harden was no longer going to play for this Brooklyn team. You get instant value by swapping these two players, but I think the Brooklyn Nets, Ben Simmons is a guy that we've seen him when he is committed is a fantastic player and will fit in so perfectly next to score first guys like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Um, it may allow him to take less pressure and really breathe and grow into his game. Added to the fact that you get a floor spacer in Seth Curry, you get a, a true size center. Again, those are your six fouls against the Giannis. Those are your six fouls against an Embiid, right? Is an Andre Drummond. That's a really important thing for them to have come playoff time. Even if he's not the most productive player anymore, just having a big body like that to bang with those two guys is, is essential. And they get two first round picks from Philadelphia on top of that. It feels like a really big deal. Um, Congrats to Daryl Morey for holding out and still getting in the end, the value that he wanted on his side with James Harden. From what we've seen from James Harden this season, I don't know if, if we can truly believe that he's going to return to the offensive God that he was two, three seasons ago. But on the other side, if he is a guy that has been tanking his way out of Houston and Brooklyn and is finally going to commit and play at a high level, then, oh my God, it's two of the top 12 players in the league going together. And both of them 
pretty unstoppable when they set their mind to it. This, this Philadelphia team, it, it, it looks like a situation where it's a LeBron Anthony Davis. We figure the rest out and we go win a title and, and Philadelphia, if, if James Harden gets back in shape, gets back in the lab, this definitely skyrockets rockets their potential, which is why they made the move and they give up a lot of assets, but Ben Simmons was never going to play for them again. Um, you move out Seth Curry, but you still hold on to Matisse Thibel and Tyrese Maxey, which were two guys that were rumored to go with Ben Simmons in, in other trades. So you still hold on to them, which is nice. Um, Andre Drummond, again, fine to give up. And the picks, like if you're committed to winning right now, you throw the picks out the window. So I think honestly, this trade benefits both sides. Um, and we'll just see which player of the two that we've talked about now for months and months and months is really going to bear down and commit themselves to winning a championship. And I think obviously Milwaukee's still the favorite, but I would say the number two team is whoever gets the most out of these two guys in the move. And that would be my kind of opponent for Milwaukee in the Eastern conference finals. I cannot decide if I'm, have any confidence in either of these players hitting the reset button and digging in because we've heard this like we saw Harden in Houston he goes to the Nets that was his chance to hit the reset button and dig in he didn't after Ben Simmons whole shenanigans in the playoffs after not going to the Olympics we heard all the talk and we heard he was going to practice he was going to dig in and he didn't so I think easier said than done when it comes to extracting any significant tangible value from either of these players. But the ceiling that this Philadelphia 76ers team has with Embiid and Harden might, I mean, we would have been saying this about, we were saying this about the Nets as soon as we thought about KD and Harden on the same team, like, oh my God, no one will be able to stop that offense. And it was sort of kind of true. We didn't get to see it in the playoffs that much. So the jury's out. I think just the spacing look of Embiid, a guy who's unstoppable mainly in the post, but will light you up from three or anywhere on the floor if you leave him open. And Harden, a guy who you cannot leave open on three, but is maybe even more dangerous with his foul baiting anywhere closer. On the visual of that spacing, two guys, one really dangerous starting from the key, one really dangerous from the three-point line who can both then go from there and score anywhere on the floor. My most optimistic thought for Philly is that passing is the one thing Harden consistently has done really well this season beyond any other. So you love that he can slowly find his scoring touch on the 76ers team running some sort of offense that looks like Embiid getting the first crack and then swinging to Harden, who's going to be a spacer wide open, but then as the second swing guy, probably gets you a lot of great looks. Um, it still feels like a fleecing, though, for the Brooklyn Nets to get rid of a player who was not going to sign with them. This free agency wasn't adding that much to their offense. And they received Seth Curry, a massive center, which they were lacking, and two first-round picks. Like, after all of Daryl Morey's talks, I don't know if you remember, like, the potential Raptors request for Simmons, but, like, I just remember being offended. It's kind of hilarious to see Morey give up two first-round picks after all of that. Yeah, the picks mean nothing to him. We've seen that yeah. in Houston. Um, yeah, really big trade and can't wait to watch the debuts of these two guys eventually when, when it comes around to it. I saw a really funny tweet, though. <laughs> like, man, Brooklyn Nets fans not going to feel quite so good about this trade when uh, Irving can't play at home and Simmons can't play in Philly in the playoffs. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. They're going to have to, they, there's still a possibility that Brooklyn could fall here. We don't know when Simmons yeah. is going to be ready and Irving I, only playing road games. KD still going to be out for about a month still. They, they might be in the play-in game 
and that might be more beneficial for them because then they get Irving playing the road games. But uh, it will be fascinating to see. They may have to grind their way through this playoffs, which is why they're really going to need all three of those guys active and health and and playing at a high level. Yeah, Ben Simmons is about to get a stimulation overload from the entire Nets franchise trying to like vitalize him um, to get in there. I had one more thought on this, but oh yeah. Do you think Simmons will play in Philadelphia? Oh yeah. Yeah. And if anything, I think, well, we don't know the type of player. We don't know the type of, we kind of know the type of person that he is. We don't know for sure. Action. Some players would relish the, yeah. Some players would relish the opportunity to go shut up that crowd, but yeah, you're right. He may, if he makes any mistakes, they are going to, bite down hard on him so it would be really really entertaining to see these two teams play they do play in a month who knows if both of those guys will be ready by then damn and the one other trade that kind of took my breath away was perzingis uh dinwiddie tingus pingus going one way uh spencer dinwiddie and davis bertans or davis bertans going back the other um for for dallas really Again, an unmovable contract finally gets moved, right? And no contract is unmovable in the NBA. Uh, they get off Porzingis. They get Dinwiddie, who's one year kind of he's, – he's definitely overpaid. He ha- had that hot start with Washington, and it's really gone downhill from there. Um, but he is one year closer to free agency than Porzingis with a slightly lower cap hit. I mean, they do take on the Bertons contract, which is a little bit yeesh. But maybe Luca can revitalize him as a shooter and spacer um, because that's really all that he provides. It's kind of both teams just saying, take my asset that I don't want, we'll flip it, and it benefits them both in somewhat. We do see the Wizards also move Montrez Harrell. So Porzingis may end up being the starting four there with Daniel Gafford, which I actually don't mind as a combination. Uh, but I think the other side of it is Porzingis may not just not play at all and they'll get him healthy. And then when Beal and him are ready for next year, they're going to try contending again. So a uh, uh, kind of a big name moving, but honestly, all in all, not too surprising or shocking of a trade. All right, just, I'm going to run through some really quickly here. Most comedic trade, Daniel Tice returning to the Boston Celtics, um, the Phoenix Suns, a really quiet, successful deadline they get Aaron Holiday as their kind of other option to campaign as the backup point guard they get him for nothing um well cash (laughs) and then they also go and get Torrey Craig who has played on this team before just provides you another wing with fouls uh with a couple of minutes that you can put out in a playoff game uh they move Jalen Smith a guy that obviously they were never bought in on because they didn't extend him and they move Jalen Smith so they don't have to worry about paying him at the end of his rookie deal. Uh, Montrez Harrell was kind of a great under-the-radar move by the Charlotte Hornets. He may slot in as their starting center, and he's a guy who can run and gun with ball and bridges, so I like that move. Um, the Boston Celtics end up getting Derek White for Josh Richard- Richardson. Uh, they also send Romeo Langford in that deal, so... They finally move off of a guy who never quite lived up to their potential, but I could see Langford really developing into something special in the San Antonio program. And then on the other side, Derek White, a combo guard. I don't know about the fit with Marcus Smart, but maybe they're hoping he's that point guard that the Celtics have been missing to really try and and run their offense. And then kind of two move, two trades left here to talk about in slightly greater detail. Um, I, I think my favorite under the radar move of the deadline was the Detroit Pistons landing second overall pick Marvin Bagley in a four team trade where somehow the Milwaukee Bucks end up with Serge Ibaka in two seconds, which is a huge move for them without Brooke Lopez, probably for the rest of the season, Serge can slot in and be a fantastic spacer rim protector next to Giannis. Um, that's a little bit scary. And that could be one that, really decides things come playoff time the kings get dante divincenzo which is a nice semi-replacement for halliburton 
along with Josh Jackson and Trey Lyles, and then the Clippers get Rodney Hood and Semi Ojale. Meh. But Marvin Bagley is going to get more playtime. He's stuck behind Jeremy Grant and Sadiq Bey in the in the rotation for now, but I think he could get some run with this Detroit Pistons team that tried getting Bull Bull earlier in the season to experiment with a, a really long athletic center. Now they get their hand at, at Marvin Bagley, and maybe they're trying to combine some some top two picks in Cade Cunningham and, and Marvin Bagley and, and see what you can do from there. Uh, I'd be happy to see Bagley revive his career after being the guy picked before Luka Doncic. <laughs> Last trade here, of course, because this is a Toronto-based podcast, we have to talk about the Raptors. Um, Goran Dragic, a guy who didn't play for this team, finally out the door. We expected him to leave one way or another. Uh, Pretty big asset goes along with him in a 2022 protected first-round pick. It is lottery protected, but the Raptors would be conveying that pick right now if the season ended today, would be around kind of the 18 to 20 mark in the draft, which is definitely not insignificant by any means, but they believe that it was worth it to give up, especially the way this team has been playing. In return, they get Thaddeus Young, another big forward that is going to add to this team that just can run out six, eight guys all around the court. Uh, He's a great playmaker. He's a veteran who can play some defense as well. I think he's going to slot in quite nicely. They just they didn't get that center, right? They didn't get that big body that a lot of fans were screaming for, but um, it obviously didn't seem to matter because they extend their win streak to eight games, uh, beating a couple of basement dwellers in the Thunder and the Rockets on back-to-back nights. But we get to see some more minutes from Malachi Flynn, Delano Banton um, with some greater production. And Thaddeus Young, I think the biggest part of the steal, besides all the great things he brings as a veteran NBA player, is he is going to take some more minutes off of the plate of Ananobi, Siakam, Barnes, Van Vliet, Gary Trent, because all five of those guys are in the top 25 in the entire NBA in minutes played. So just another guy you know you can trust to slot in the rotation. Uh, and Nick Nurse is definitely going to utilize him well. So in the end, I like the trade. I don't like giving up a first-round pick, but it is lottery protected. So if this Raptors team has a disastrous stretch run, falls out of it, they will hold on to their first-round pick, and then it turns into a 1-13 to protected pick next year if, if they hold on to it. Yeah, that does seem like a lot to move off of a guy like Dragic, who I don't know if there's any prospect of him playing this season. So it looks like San Antonio is going to buy him out and he's just going to go sign with someone. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you do have to give up a protected first to take a contract like that off your hands. And the way the Raptors are playing, making a win now move to do that. I can't disagree with it till I see how the result turns out. Yep. Yep. A crazy trade deadline. Uh, A lot of the contenders get better um, talking Phoenix, talking Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Brooklyn, all those teams get better. And then you look at Golden State holding Pat, the Lakers holding Pat was a big one that people were losing their minds over. They do not make the move. They are locked into Russ, AD, and LeBron for the rest of this season. Um, And so we shall see. What this does, I look forward to all of the players making their debuts either tonight or tomorrow in the trades, and we'll see what that dynamic looks like as we move along in the NBA season. But we have spent a ton of time on this NBA trade deadline, so we will move on here to Combat Corner, where Max, Saturday night, going to be a good one. Oh my goodness. Robert Whitaker versus Israel Adesanya, the rematch for the middleweight title. What a fight. This is how you do championship rematches. You have the loss. You have the former champ or the challenger lick their wounds. Go back. You have each side put some more fights under their belt, add more to their game. And then if they both win, you have a fascinating storyline going in. And that's the recipe we have making this wonderful main event. Um, I want to talk a bit of the past, present, future on this fight, starting by going back to 2019, their first fight. 
I believe September of that year. So about two and a half years ago. Um, as a Whitaker fan, going in, I felt pretty confident after Adesanya's fight of the year with Gastelum that saw Gastelum tag Adesanya multiple times. It was really hard to feel that Rob wouldn't also be able to do that. Um, and my memory of that fight was just being incredibly nervous the entire fight as he drops Rob at the end of the first round. And at that point, it felt like the fight was over. It was only a matter of time. I think about three and a half minutes into the second round is he drops Rob again harder and uh, takes him out before he collects his bearings. But on the rewatch, Whitaker did a lot better than I remember. And his strategy makes a lot more sense having seen some of Izzy's fights since. So he just comes out charging, swinging. Uh, he mixes it between that stomping teep to the leg, uh, a jab, his hooks, kind of with like a ducking head movement, always on the attack, never letting Izzy get settled, get comfortable. The thing is, Izzy's just really hard to hit. He has a six and a half reach advantage on this matchup. And so that kind of explosiveness, full body tilt at Izzy is the only way Whitaker can really get close enough to hit him. And even doing that with all the athleticism Rob has, Whitaker's reflex, excuse me, Adesanya's reflexes, distance management, head movement still make it really hard to do. So Whitaker did everything he could and just enough to like tag and touch Izzy. Unfortunately for him, two times he makes a mistake. The first time right at the end of the first gets dropped. The second three and a half minutes into the third. Both times Izzy kind of shortens the distance a little. Rob blitzes in, kind of lands on the first strike, tries to follow up hanging in the pocket. Izzy's able to get his head out of the way, keep it at a spot where Whitaker's reach just literally doesn't let him touch Izzy. And then he just swings his hands up. It's whip-like is the word. I don't can't think of any other term to explain how he generates knockout power from these positions. Oh, it's insane. He's like leaning backwards, almost like in a hold your balance circus position. And then he just windmills his arm up in a what looks like a technical hook, despite my description of it, and has knockout power when he does it. Like you charge in, you hit him, and then he gets his head out of the way and knocks you out. What more can you do? It's such a fascinating puzzle for Whitaker and the couple fights each side have had since sheds a little more light on it. So for Izzy, he has that complete stinker against Romero, then has what I'd call like his magnum opus, the like defining fight so far against Paulo Costa, where with that incredible all the heat, all the trash talk, all the blood, bad blood, and Izzy just outclasses him. Riding that high, he goes up for the light heavyweight challenge against Jan Blahovic uh, and loses to Blahovic in a fairly tight and close kickboxing match that I would say Blahovic pretty thoroughly outclassed him enough to get the win every step of the way. And then Izzy similarly outclasses Marvin Vittori, just showing three or four levels of striking above what the Italian could do. So what we learned from there is if you stand in front of Izzy, he will kick your legs out and it will be horrible. Uh, Costa and Vittori teaching us that lesson. So Whitaker's charging, kind of the best way to deal with that, unless you're a Jan Blahovich who has A, the Muay Thai karate background to check most of the leg kicks, and two, the reach and distance management to land and score and win points with the jab, staying out of range. Whitaker doesn't have the background or the reach to land that jab, so he has to do things a bit differently. 
The last thing Blahovich did really well, though, was wrestle Izzy, something a lot of people think about, a lot of people talk about doing, but Jan's head and shoulders had the only success with it. Uh, what was significant about that was he stood with Izzy, he struck with him, he gave Izzy enough to think about on the feet, and that's when he was able to land the takedowns. Moving on to Rob, takes on uh, Darren Till, uh, Jared Cannonier, and Kelvin Gastelum, getting through all three of them by decision. The Darren Till fight, super technical kickboxing match that sees Rob dropped in the first round, comes back from that, basically destroys and cripples Till's knee with that stomping teep kick to the above the knee talked about earlier that he likes to throw and just out kickboxes till from there gets the drop back the cannoneer my favorite of this trilogy from Whitaker just because cannoneer by far the most dangerous of these three fighters and the momentum cannoneer was on was one fight away from that title shot Whitaker makes cannoneer's leg kick which ended Anderson Silva's MA career I guess that was Uriah Hall but anyway uh, that kick doesn't look like a problem the power never even comes close to touching Whitaker and he drops Cannoneer with that head kick it was the way he set up the head kick all night landed it in the third round it's not like a sport moment of the year but just the tactics and strategy there was one of my favorite things that year I, maybe when we do our uh, end year countdowns We'll find a space for top 10 strategic moments or something. Lastly, the Gaslam fight again. Whitaker just outclassing Kelvin Gaslam. The jab was money. The wrestling mixed in with the striking. I love to see it in MMA. Um, what all three of those fights showed for Whitaker is the ability to draw out a game plan and execute it almost perfectly, other than the tail knockdown in the very first round of these 12 that he fought no 13 so 12 for 13 pretty good on the execution especially in a row okay so what can rob do better this time around the head kicks beautiful against cannoneer effective against gaslam zero on izzy because of that distance and reach advantage and the head movement of Adesanya he's got to be a lot sneakier with those what when I think about how we'll think about these two fighters after this fight I can really see it going either way with us viewing that first fight as a blip an off night for Rob or as Adesanya being the greatest middleweight we've ever seen in the UFC which is quite a gap um but these like they each do the things they need to do well enough to win rob i believe can move at that speed dart in there mix in his wrestling sneak a head kick land with one of those wild hooks at, but adesanya it's like when rob was having that success early in the first round early in the second round was Izzy just teeing him up, waiting, like extending the distance, seeing what Rob did at farther, less lethal distances? Because both times he gets that knockout, he closes it to more of a mid-range distance and he just finds it in the pocket so easily. So if he does that again, there's no question. But if Rob lands easy, executes that like striking wrestling, mobile, staying at the perfect distance game plan that I think exists to be Izzy and we just haven't seen yet, then I don't know. The future really fascinates me for how we'll think about these two. I hope this fight is a high enough level competitive one where we do see a third one because I think these are just two of the best middleweights of our era. It's so great to see them compete against each other. And I'm really excited to see them do so Saturday night and looking forward to breaking it down next time on Combat Corner. Oh, I'll throw it to you for your preview because I need to catch my breath here. Let's go from right on Saturday. It is going to be a buckling weekend for sports fans out there. If you are not indulging on Saturday night, then you most definitely will be indulging on the Sunday. Of course, I'm talking the Super Bowl. 
the Los Angeles Rams, the Cincinnati Bengals throwing down at SoFi Stadium. Cannot wait for this one. And I'm here to do a little bit of instant analysis. And then we'll talk game. We'll talk result. We'll talk a little bit of props. And uh, yeah, really, really excited for all things Super Bowl here. It's what the whole season builds up to. And breaking down each week in the NFL has finally led to this moment and and a four-hour marathon of a game, including a big-time halftime show. Uh, it is going to be quite the spectacle. So without Who's further ado, Eminem, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg. Oh, wow. Uh, Kendrick Lamar, and then uh, Mary J. Blige, I believe. It's a, it's a star-studded lineup for sure. And yeah. they're going to get about two minutes each, eh? Yeah, this is a big deal for Detroit. Eminem and Matthew Stafford in the same Super Bowl. This is as close <laughs> as they may ever come. <laughs> All right, instant analysis here. Three big matchups. All right, number one, Joe Burrow versus Matthew Stafford. All right, the first thing you do when you pick playoff games, when you're betting on them, when you're picking them, you don't pick the spread, you pick the winner. And you always got to rely on the quarterback, right? The quarterback play is so vital. And we've seen that. These two guys are great quarterbacks. That's why they're in the Super Bowl. Joe Burrow especially has really, really emerged as a top five, top seven quarterback in the NFL. He went into Arrowhead. He was down 21 to three, and he won with this Bengals team. Obviously, defense had a big part to play in that, but you you still got to put up the points in this league. And he did so. On the other side, Matthew Stafford questioned. He had a couple of crazy plays this season. You were worried about him holding onto the ball, but he has been lights out in the playoffs. And of course, his signature moment was that deep ball down the middle of the cup to lead to the game-winning field goal against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the divisional round. He has made some big throws. They both are here. Uh, One of them Stafford needs this Super Bowl to really try and solidify his Hall of Fame resume. And Joe Burrow, looking to become the first quarterback ever to win the Heisman, a college national championship, and a Super Bowl. And he's going to do it in three years, all apart. Really, really crazy stuff. Um, A lot of accolades in his future. And and this is a great quarterback matchup. I got to lean slightly to Burrow just because of what he's been able to do with less, in my opinion. Sean McVay is an offensive genius. This offensive line has been really great for the Rams, whereas Joe Burrow has been running for his life a lot of times. He does have an all-world receiving core, but he's been really special with the way he's been reading teams and, and making big plays when it's mattered most. The next big matchup here to talk about is, of course, this offensive line I just referred to of the Bengals going up against the Rams' defensive line. We saw the Bengals against Tennessee. They gave up nine sacks. Uh, Jeffrey Simmons was all over Burrow, getting him down many, many times. How do you think this offensive line is going to fare against the greatest defensive player in the NFL in Aaron Donald, plus Vaughn Miller and Leonard Floyd uh, flanking him? It is going to be a scary proposition for Burrow, running for his life once again. Um, they're going to need to mix up their blocking schemes. They're going to need to add running backs, tight ends to support because these, these Rams are going to run amok in the backfield. They did it against Jimmy G. They did it against Tom Brady. Uh, they did it against Kyler Murray and, and they're ready to do it against Burrow. So that's a big one to look out for. And if you think the Rams are, are going to win this game, I would bet heavily on that sacks over prop. The last matchup here, uh, a awesome generational talent matchup one-on-one here. We got Jamar Chase going up against Jalen Ramsey. And every week, it feels like I love promoting Jalen Ramsey's matchups against the Mike Evans, against the Devontae Adams, against the DeAndre Hopkins. He now gets to go up against a rookie wide receiver who is rewriting some of the history books. Uh, Jamar Chase has had a phenomenal season and has been a big, big piece of Cincinnati success. Uh, He can do it all, getting jet sweeps, getting screen passes, going vertical down the field, making that perfectly timed offensive pass interference, but I'm actually just going up for the ball to catch it, move. And Jalen Ramsey embraces those physical matchups. Jamar Chase is a physical receiver. 
Ramsey loves pressing at the line. I believe he is going to follow Chase all around the field in this game and is going to be a fantastic matchup to watch between these two studs. What that means is, personally, as someone who does not know all of the excellences and O's of football, I would recommend the Belichick method. If you've got Ramsey following Chase around the field, then you double up their next um, favorite target, which would be T. Higgins. Now, if you think Cincinnati is going to win this game, I would recommend going heavily on the T. Higgins over receiving yards and over longest catch because he is a really big dude. He looks like a tight end, but he moves at the speed of a wide receiver. And Darius Williams, the CB2 for the Rams, has had a pretty terrible playoffs. He just hasn't been exposed largely enough for them to lose. But T. Higgins, a big matchup win there for the Bengals, and I can see him having a big game. So if I'm the Rams, I'm doubling up with help over top and letting Ramsey take out Chase. And I'm forcing the Bengals to beat me with a Joe Mixon, with a C.J. Uzama, with a Tyler Boyd. And all those guys are great options, but it can't be Chase or Higgins. So with that being said, Joe Mixon is a necessity for this Bengals team. Uh, the Rams have been lights out against the run in the playoffs. And that was something in the season that I had mentioned was maybe a weaker part of their defense, but they've really turned it on and stuffed a lot of these teams, especially the 49ers last week, which is known, which are known for having a great run game, but the Rams have, have stood very firm and Joe Mixon, the, the Bengals are really going to need him to, to do something because Burrow is going to be chased down heavily by the steel line all game. So they will need Mixon to be involved. On the other side, Cam Akers, great rookie season, obviously had the Achilles tear. He's back. He looked okay. Uh, he had those two brutal fumbles against Tampa Bay in the divisional game. So he will need to bounce back to provide some balance to this Rams offense. But I think the Rams are going to go pretty pass heavy because they do have Cooper Cup who may who made like he had, he's probably had one of the top 10 wide receiver seasons of all time. And he's basically uncoverable. I'm going over on catches uh, for Cooper cup because despite teams best efforts to game plan for him, he still somehow manages to get open. And then on the other side, you've got Odell Beckham jr. Who has completely revived his career and can create in a one-on-one -on -one matchup. So I see heavy passing for the Rams. And I see that being really, really tough for the Bengals to, to keep up with. I think the game script of this game is a fast start for the Rams at home in SoFi. They know the Super Bowl. They've been here before. They know the cadence of the game. They're going to be well-rested in their homes and ready to roll, uh, whereas Cincinnati may be trying to figure out the whole process on a game as big as this. So I see the Rams coming out fast, and then just like they did against Kansas City, uh, I see the Bengals trying to creep back in this one, and I think it could end up being a really close, exciting game. The last kind of matchup to, to really touch on here, if we get late game, is the kicking advantage. The Cincinnati Bengals, of course, Evan McPherson has been lights out, perfect in the playoffs versus Matt Gay, who is solid, but a little unsteady once we get past 45 yards. So the kicking advantage largely lies with the Bengals. And if this game is close, uh, I definitely am taking Evan McPherson over on field goals for the game. Uh, but you could also see them attempt some pretty long field goals if we're in late half scenarios. So there you have it. That is my high level with a couple deep dives into the Super Bowl. I do have the Rams winning this just as a purely analytical pick, but my heart resides in Cincinnati. Would love to see them win it for Harambe. Um, and the Bengals would be a fun story for sure. Right before we wrap up here and move into talking hockey, just want to line up some of my fun prop bets for this Sunday. I have orange as the Gatorade color. I have the over on the national anthem length. Always go over. They love to milk it. I have money on Snoop Dogg smoking on stage. I think that's a guarantee. <laughs> that, seems, that seems pretty easy. Uh, and then I have Aaron Donald as my MVP of the Super Bowl because of the value that you get there. Normally it is a quarterback, but I think if the Rams end up winning this game, I could see Aaron Donald having a massive game and finally being recognized not only with the season awards, but a playoff award for him being the MVP of the Super Bowl. So there you have it. Enjoy your Sundays, folks. Enjoy the food. Always some great food on Super Bowl Sunday. I know I will be partaking. 
And there you have it. We'll be back on Monday to break that one down after it happens. All right. We are into talking hockey and the Toronto Maple Leafs with a couple of it's go time now in the NHL (laughs) first and foremost, but a couple of playoff caliber matchups this week between a hurricanes team with a ton of talent. They end up squeaking out that win. Mitch Marner with a fantastic game. He had 10, he has 10 goals in his last eight games heading into that Calgary game. Uh, They tie it late and they win it in overtime. Austin Matthews suffering a knee to the back of the head, a scary moment, but it looks like, he is, it, it wasn't as serious as what happened in the game, but the Leafs still managed to beat a really great Carolina team. And then they go and play Calgary and get absolutely punched in the mouth, which is the other style here. Carolina is that playoff team with a ton of skill that you have to be able to keep up with, and that might suit the Leafs better. But this Calgary team lies in with the same mantra of a Boston Bruins, of a St. Louis Blues, of a even Tampa Bay Lightning with some of the guys that they'll put together on their teams and go out and hit you. And this Flames team is very physical. They're on a roll right now, and they took it to the Leafs. And so a couple of conflicting styles, but the two main styles come playoff time that you have to be ready for. Uh, So we will see how the Leafs respond from that win uh, this weekend, that game this weekend. Some final news here. While the Leafs still doing quite well, they're right in that hunt there. Um, three games in hand on Florida, six games back. Their rivals, the Montreal Canadiens, continue to slide. They're, the Arizona Cart Coyotes at one point, well, first of all, this stadium got approved, so they're playing in ASU next year, but not until December, so they may spend the first three months on the road. Just gong show in Arizona. Despite that, there is a team worse than them in the NHL, and that is the Montreal Canadiens. Caden Primo, not an NHL goalie and not an NHL team in front of him. They are getting shellacked. Dominic Ducharme kicked out the window, uh, thrown off the burning bus, but the bus keeps burning. And frankly, he might be thankful that he's gone. So Martin St. Louis is the interim head coach in Montreal. Fun little moment. Love Martin St. Louis. Uh, Great player. Don't know if he'll be able to do anything to turn this ship around, but really he's just got to drive it into the, into the tank uh, promised land so they try and land Shane Wright many coaches have been hired taken their team to the Stanley Cup finals and then been fired all within a calendar year I imagine yeah. Ducharme joining a very short list there and mm. yeah St. Louis I, I don't think Tab's management could face their fans right now um, kicking a player like St. Louis out the door for a long time though the interim title maybe gives them a bit of leeway there um not a lot of expectations in so probably a sweet first head coaching gig for him all right yeah uh, there you go that's talking hockey max we'll wrap things up with uh, a little tennis check-in here yes sir the rotterdam 500 in full swing now we've got just four players left as we head into our quarters a lot of seeded players getting upset in the first or second round. So first, our final four, Stefano Stitsipas, the number one seed in the tournament, will take on Yuri Leheka, an unseeded player who I think came in on a qualifier. And then on the bottom half, we got our Canadian Felix Auger-Aliassime taking on Andre Rublev, the second seeded Russian. So... Sitsi passes run pretty straightforward. He went three sets in his first match, dropping the second, taken every set since then. No big tough opponents yet for him. Um, all is planned. Yuri Laheka, definitely the dark horse of this four, taking out Canadian Denis Shapovalov in the very first round. Um, Musetti, the Italian, takes out the Polish Herkaz, who's a top 10 world seed. I can't, I think he was seeded fourth in this tournament. Um, Laheka should have had to face him to make it to the quarters, but Musetti took him out and Laheka beats Musetti. Then on the bottom half, Felix Ojeda-Sim, I think, does have the toughest run through the draw, anyone said. After going three sets in the first match, he takes out Andy Murray, which is, you never know what you're going to get there. 
respectful match between the two. And then Cam Nori, who's maybe the only seeded player to have lost in the tournament so far that it wasn't a big L. He strings a couple wins together, which if you remember from the preview was really important for him. The other guy who was that in that scenario, um, Basilev Shi, I definitely didn't get that right, but the Georgian lost in the first round, so he continues to not have anyone wins. Disappointing for Shapovalov, disappointing for Hubert Herkaz, but uh, disappointing for Aslan Karatsev as well. All those players going out first or second round, but balance of probabilities, it's going to happen to some players. Uh, Sitsipas and Rublev, two of the top 10 players in the world right now, just because of how less often such things happen to them. So they're obviously the two seat favorites to win their matchups and go on to see each other in the finals. Uh, when we have our Monday pod, we'll wrap this 500 event up as well. Yeah, it's kind of nice. This pod's been a lot of previewing and the next pod's going to be a lot of recapping. Yes, yes. Everyone enjoy the awesome events ahead of us i know i sure am and then uh, we will get back to you on valentine's day because we will love what happened this weekend <laughs> oh will you be my valentine absolutely my friend no sports next door signing out <laughs>